terribly interesting. K-A-R, 120C. What's the engine number? Do tell me. 461034TZ. I know every nut and bolt and cog. I built it with my own hands. Then you're just the man I want to see. I've been having a good deal of overheating in traffic. Perhaps you'll care to advise me. Welcome to Prisoner Worth Watching, where we're looking at this groundbreaking 50-year-old show about spies, paranoia, and politics that's more relevant now than ever. I'm your host, and all I want is for my co-host to fix my fancy spy car as it's been stalling out in traffic lately. My co-host is Guy, who I hear bakes a nice birthday cake. Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. I hope you ordered the milk for the party. We're going to need lots of it. Well, if you mean booze, then yes, I have. <laughs> Well, now you've triggered a story. The first time I had Kahlua, legal but a teenager, mm. was at a friend's house, and he served it with milk in it. And I mm. really liked it. I really took to the Kahlua, you know, because you're basically drinking, like, syrup <laughs> that has yeah, alcohol. I think that's called a sombrero, if I remember right. I yeah, well, that. I think even bartenders don't always know about it. So that when we were at a bar at some point, I ordered milk and Kahlua and the bartender, I could hear him in the background just going, milk and Kahlua? Milk and Kahlua? Because <laughs> of course it's supposed to be Kahlua and cream. <laughs> and if you, uh, <laughs> if you add vodka, you've got a white Russian. That's true. So not much context for this episode, even though I think there's a lot to talk about with it. It was another one that was directed by Patrick McGowan uh, under a pseudonym, but he didn't write this one. There was an actual writer for it. I consider this episode in the ordering that I've done to be the end of what I'll call the narrative part of the story, which will make more sense when we see the next couple of episodes. Yeah, I, I haven't seen those yet, but this one does feel like it should be towards the end of the run, just, yep. just from what I saw in it. Yeah, and th they filmed it like 13th, which is pretty close to where we are. This is, I think, like our 11th episode the way we're watching it so pretty close but they broadcast it number seven in the middle mm. and i think we'll see why when we get to the end i, I think that's insane and doesn't make any <laughs> sense at all okay with that on to many happy returns you have a little comment to make <laughs> well yeah right in the beginning here and we don't know this yet and you can tell it's really obvious once you know what the story is but they totally fake us out on the number two <laughs> right? It's a generic male voice, and there's a shot of number two in that spherical chair, but you can't quite see his face. And there's another shot where usually you see number two, and it's replaced with a shot of Rover. <laughs> this is all a fake out, but we don't, we don't know that yet. <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I noticed that Rover shot, and it, it struck me as off somehow, and that's probably why I'm probably used to seeing number two there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm just making a little note, put a little pin in that, and we'll come back to what that's all about. <laughs> all right. Well, the show starts off in number six's apartment in the village. He's sleeping in striped pajamas, and he wakes up and gets out of bed. Well, the first thing he notices is that the percolator is not making any coffee. Apparently, that's something he would normally have waiting for him. He goes into the bathroom... 
and both the shower and the sink have no running water, which is also abnormal. And he goes out to the living room, and the speaker, the big omnipresent speaker, is silent, and that's very abnormal. <laughs> but this has to be the only time ever that he that it bothers him that the speaker is silent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we've talked before about how uh, sometimes the speaker is silent in other episodes, but in general, he'd expect it to be doing something. It's a plot speaker. <laughs> it's yeah, always uh, yeah. putting out whatever <laughs> sound it needs to. <laughs> right. So he steps outside. He's got his pajamas and a robe on. And as, <laughs> excuse me. as soon as he goes outside, it's it's kind of amusing because there's that lonesome wind sound effect you know <laughs> the village look it looks like it's an overcast autumn day the trees what leaves they have left on them are orange but there aren't many of them you can see the big fountain that's sort of the centerpiece of the village. In the distance, it's down there, and it's still running. And I suspect if the movie or the showmakers had had their druthers, I think they probably would have rather that it be turned off for this episode. But, you know, the, the town probably owns the fountain, and they probably just didn't want to <laughs> goof around that's with That's possible, it. yeah. But it's in the distance, so it doesn't really catch your attention much. And there's a black cat prowling around the village, and it takes a moment to look at number six. He doesn't seem to make much of that. But he does see that, as far as he can tell, from the balcony of his apartment, the town seems deserted. He heads back inside, and he checks the phone, and it's dead. There's no dial tone. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, uh, you know, dial tone is one of those things that kids today would have no idea <laughs> what that is. Yes, yeah, that's uh, not not such a common thing these days. Another thing later on, we'll see a reel of film, and that I may have to yeah. explain a thing or two about <laughs> when we get to that. But yeah, if you have a landline phone, as it's called, and you pick it up, you're supposed to hear a dial tone that tells you that the phone is active and working, and he doesn't get that. So he gets dressed, and he heads over to the cafe, and the cafe is closed. We know that the cafe does close now and then for uh, speed learn sessions and so on, but uh, <laughs> in general, it's the social hub of the village, so to speak, mm -hmm. but not today. It's closed. He heads over to the old folks' home, and that's quiet. Nobody seems to be home, and in fact, the old folks' home has those patio tables and umbrellas on the lawn outside, and... One of the tables and umbrellas have just toppled over, and nobody's bothered to stand them upright. One thing you can say about the village is it may be a prison where you're forgotten by the rest of the world, but they usually do some fair maintenance on it, <laughs> and they haven't done that today. His next stop's the bell tower, which we've learned in a previous episode. He makes a habit of climbing the bell tower. And that's what he does now. And from that vantage point, he can still see no signs of life or activity in the village. So at this point, he must figure to hell with it. And he rings the bell several times just to see if it'll raise somebody's ire. But nope, it doesn't. Nobody responds. And unfortunately, uh, I really wish they'd had a documentary on the Blu-ray 
about this episode because I think it's a fascinating episode. And I would love to know, it just seems like it must have been a real challenge to get all these shots of the entire village with it being totally abandoned because yeah, this was a working I, place, right? That actually had people staying there and stuff. I, I was wondering about that, although the fact that the trees are mostly leafless, this may be the off season, mm. you know, so it may not have been as difficult as it would be well, that's at a good the, point. Say, maybe, the height of summer. Yeah, they maybe they did have an actual time when people don't stay there or something that they were able to do this. Yeah. But yeah, it's a good question in any event. He heads down from the bell tower. One of the village wagons is waiting down there with a key in the ignition. Number six starts it just to test it. He's not supposed to be driving those around. There have been <laughs> rare occasions where he's been able to, but in general, it's a no-no. He turns it on, hears it's running, it's got gas in the tank, and then he just turns it off again. He was just curious to see what the deal was. He heads over to number two's place. Nobody answers the doorbell, but the door is unlocked. And when he gets inside, the doors to the inner sanctum there, he pries them apart, they're sliding doors, but he doesn't really have to force them. He just kind of pushes them, mm -hmm. and they open up without a problem. In the office, number two's famous sphere chair mm -hmm. is out in the open. It hasn't been retracted into the floor. But in the chair, there's nothing but number two's umbrella. Mm -hmm. So even, even the central administrative hub of the village is uh, is abandoned apparently so having seen all this number six decides to get out of there and he takes that wagon and drives off and we see him driving down a road and past a fence that may delineate the boundaries of the village it's not or it could just be a fence but it's not one that we've seen in the day-to-day -day episodes so far but very soon He's stymied because he comes into a range of high, steep mountains, and they're really, really high and really steep. They're not <laughs> what you would expect from what we've seen of the countryside around the village. It looks to me a lot like Machu Picchu. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not going to say it's impossible, but the idea of this idyllic little village that is, you know, pretty temperate and everything, and then literally a few feet away, you have like the highest mountains you could think of. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it's a little dubious. <laughs> oh, well. Anyway, he decides that that's not the route he wants to take. We next see him chopping down some trees, and he's chopping down with a real axe. Now, in another episode, he had to make his own stone axe, and he wasn't even supposed to have that because it's a weapon, and prisoners aren't allowed to have weapons in the village, even though technically anything can be a weapon. But, <laughs> yeah, they draw some lines here and there. Right, but in that one, they sort of pretended that he chopped down the tree because, you know, there, it would have taken him months, you know. With that yeah. Thing. But this, <laughs> he, he actually chops it down, and you can actually see him chop it down because he has a real axe, so they can really do it. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> so maybe the axe is from numbers, number two's place. Number two <laughs> probably gets to own weapons. So he's done some tree chopping, and he also is emptying some 55-gallon drums. We see him empty one of them, and something glugs out that looks like muddy water. Maybe it was supposed to be an oil I thought oil it was drum. a whale. Yeah. Yeah, it, it could be. It could be, but. Whatever was in it, it's not in there now. He needs the drums to be empty because he's dragging 
the logs that he's chopped and the drums that he's emptied down to the beach to build a nice pontoon raft for himself. It's uh, not big, but it's pretty nice. Yeah, I was impressed, and I think the production people did a really good job on this because it looks totally realistic, right? It both, it looks like it could mm-hmm. work because the drums really do make it float in a realistic way, but it, it's also not too sophisticated, right? It's not like you couldn't believe that he put it together. Right. Yeah, it looks doable. It would take a while. You know, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if story-wise it took a couple days to get the oh, whole yeah. thing assembled. But yeah, it's a, it's it's both plausible and looks like you wouldn't mind taking it out to see if you knew where you were going, which <laughs> he doesn't, which is kind of a problem. <laughs> but other than that, it's good. Next, we see him in the grocery. The grocer isn't there, of course, but on the grocer's counter... He writes a message. It says IOU nine hundred and sixty-four. So that's a lot of a lot of units. Uh, he's <laughs> he's going to have some debt to repay if he comes back to visit sometime. <laughs> he signs it number six with a question mark <laughs> because he doesn't like to be identified as just number six. He also. Among the things he's taken from the grocer, we'll see that he's taken a bunch of groceries, but he also takes a speaker, just like the one that he had in his apartment, and he takes a camera, a little uh, little handheld camera, and he goes around taking many, many pictures of the village, all the different buildings, just everything that he can document about it. I thought this is clever. It's maybe something I wouldn't have thought about. I might have been just too focused on getting out of there, but he, he's already thinking he's got to prove where he's been, right? Yeah, yeah, he's he's thinking ahead, which, uh, you know, number six is mostly pretty good at that, so makes sense. And then we see him back at his raft. It's ready for its maiden voyage now, and he's just making the final preparations, untying the line that keeps it docked to the shore, and he's startled by a loud sound. Now, you might think it would be Rover, but actually it turns out that on the terrace above him, there's a table next to the railing up there, and the black cat, who's been lurking about, he jumped up onto a table and broke a cup and saucer. So the cup and saucer being broken makes me think that maybe the cat is offering his resignation. Because, <laughs> of course, that's in the intro. Yeah, I also thinking, you know, wonder if there's any meaning to a black cat breaking something right before he starts his journey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing, uh, nothing ominous about that at all. <laughs> So once, once number six realizes it's just a cat, he pushes off without any further ceremony, and he's out to the open sea. Once he's out at sea, he opens up his camera that he got from the grocery, and he took all his pictures on. And for for our younger listeners, <laughs> it's probably worth mentioning that an old-style camera, you would have a roll of film, and as you took pictures, you'd have to advance this so that an unexposed part of the film would be behind the shutter. You know, so every time you're taking a new picture, you're taking it on a different part of the film. And then before you remove it, you have to be sure there'll be a little retractable crank that you have to wind up the film with and, you know, get it all back into the case before you open up the camera so that you don't expose it to light and ruin all the pictures you've just taken. But once you've wandered up, you have a nice little neat canister of film that fits in the palm of your hand. And he takes that out of the camera and puts it in a plastic bag for safekeeping. 
Yeah, at first I thought, I didn't know why he was putting it in the plastic bag, but as we'll see, that turns out actually to have been a smart idea. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> and next he uh, dismantles the speaker that he that he took from the grocery. It turns out that what he wanted to use it for was the actual speaker part of the speaker. It has a magnet behind it. And he takes a needle out of a pack labeled Village Needles. <laughs> He strokes the needle against that magnetic component of the speaker to magnetize the needle himself, and he uses that to make a crude compass. Now that the needle's magnetized, once he's put it on his little homebrew apparatus, the needle can float freely and indicate what direction he's traveling. Next, he folds up an issue of the tally-ho, which is only printed on one side, so on the other blank side, he begins keeping his journal. And we get a little sort of a montage of time passing. You know, we'll mm. see him write the day in his journal. Day one, he writes down and we see him shaving. <laughs> day five, he writes and we see him eating out of a can. Day 18, he writes. He's been out to sea for a while now. We see him nodding off. He, he seems exhausted, probably between mm. the sun and the... Overall, you know, just the tedium. Well, he says later that he slept four hours a night. So when you combine four hours of sleep with, you know, the sun and everything else, yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting detail here that I don't know how important it is, but it's odd. As he's writing day 18 in his journal, the film canister, he's taken it out of its protective bag and it's just lying there on the crate next to the journal, which... Seems unwise to me because one good wave rocking the boat would just knock that right into the sea and it'd be gone. My reaction is we get some shots here, you know, some nice wide shots of the raft in the middle of the ocean. And it reminded me of that book Contiki. Do you remember that? It was a huge thing when mm-hmm. we were kids. Yeah, yeah I think I there might have been a movie it, I, or something. What was it, Thor Heyerdahl? Yeah, it was like Norwegians who were working to prove that um, ancient people could have crossed the sea uh, on, you know, using exactly this kind of raft. Oh, right. Um, that was like to explain how Polynesia got populated yeah. or something, something like that. And I think there may be some contention later that their theory may not have been accurate, but they at least proved in some way that it was possible. Yeah. And they, they yeah. have, there's lots of pictures in that book. Cause I was really fascinated with it as a kid and I would read it and look at the pictures of, and it really looked like this, right? They're on this little wooden raft in the middle of the sea with their <laughs> tin cans of food and all this stuff. Yeah. And while he's sleeping, and he's sleeping very soundly, he looks he looks like he could very well just be dead. <laughs> while he's sleeping, a boat arrives. And I'm thinking this might be the same boat. Not, not It's not supposed to be, in story terms, the same right. boat. But I'm thinking the actual boat might be the same one we saw in an earlier episode where he was trying to escape. Yeah, I think that uh, was that was checkmate, and I think I looked. Uh, you made this note, and I looked, and I think you're totally right. It is the same boat, and it's just one of the cases of this is the boat they had available for the production. <laughs> yeah, there's even a good chance that they just filmed all this at the same time, right? Mm, yeah, could be. Yeah. <laughs> one thing about this, so we quickly see that the people on the boat are not too interested in him, right? The guy shakes him for about half a second and moves on. So he's not very interested in whether he's really alive or not. Mm -hmm. But one thing uh, I just remember as a kid, we would joke about 
the age of pirates. And we would all think mm-hmm. that, you know, pirates were in the 1800s and such. And I, I think people are much more aware now because of movies like Captain Phillips. But the reality, bizarrely enough, is that there's probably more piracy now on the seas than there ever was in history. Hmm. As you see in a movie like Captain Phillips, they will take over a large container ship. And there's actually been established this kind of ransom process where the pirates from a place like Somalia take over the ship, the company flies in some money, and then they give up the ship and give it to the company. And there's sort of this established process. But yeah, piracy And as we see here, where a boat would just come up and take his stuff and leave him to die is actually not uncommon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it seems seems quite plausible. And uh, I I am surprised to think that there's more piracy than there used to be. But uh, but again, it's 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 believable. You know, you got some Somalian pirates and all that. Yep, all that piracy stuff. And they're not the fun kind of pirates that go around drinking rum. Oh, well, they probably <laughs> do drink rum, but <laughs> these two goons, as I refer throughout my notes, I guess I should call them pirates, but I'll just call them goons. <laughs> they start transferring all number six's crates to their boat, and they dump him into the water. And this, this seemed just kind of needlessly malevolent to me at first. But then again... If they think he's dead, it might have just been almost a respectful thing, like a burial at sea, (laughs) rather than letting him stay there and dry out in the sun and get all mummified. Yeah, I think they just were making sure that if he wasn't dead, he was going to be dead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But as soon as the men are aboard their boat and not paying attention, number six springs into action before the boat has a chance to start getting underway he grabs a tire that's hanging off the side of the boat and in some shots we'll see that there are a few of them hanging off and they're probably bumpers to prevent the boat from taking Mm -hmm. damage when it's docked and he climbs aboard on the rope now on the boat number six sneaks below decks at the first chance he gets and the, the architecture of the boat is right towards the back or the stern i guess it would be is the sort of trap door leading down into the below decks area. On one side, there are a couple bedrooms. There's like this hallway that goes down amidships, I guess you'd say. There are a couple bedrooms on one side of the hallway, and there's a galley on the other side, and probably something else also, maybe an engine room, or I don't know what, but we don't get to see all the details. At the bow end of that alley, there are stairs going up to the bridge, which is where the the goons are hanging out. One of them comes around momentarily. I think maybe he goes to the galley, but wherever he was, he got some cans of village beans out of it. <laughs> Freshly nabbed from, uh, from the raft. The number six has to sort of duck into cover while that's going on. The goons on the bridge are eating their village beans and that gives number six some freedom to explore (laughs) as long as he is quiet about it. He checks out a bedroom. There's a green crate in it that looks kind of suspicious. So he rummages around a cabinet in there and the cabinet will actually play a little role in a few minutes here. He finds a a hammer that he uses to pry open the crate. And there are some guns in it. There are uh, probably three or four guns and some other miscellaneous military hardware that it's 
hard to say what it is, but well, it's, it's enough there. to say they're not just. It's not just for the ship, right? And he, he later he yeah. describes them as gun runners, and I. I think part of what's important here is they're establishing that these are not good guys, so it's okay if he dispatches with them. <laughs> yeah, it does establish that they're they're goons. <laughs> and during this, we hear the radio from the bridge, and it it's a Russian sounding language, but I think, and we've seen this in the series repeatedly, and we'll see it later again in this episode. I think it's still a nonsense language. I think what they try to do is use sort of pretend languages that might sound like they're from a certain region just because they don't want to nail it down, right? And they want to keep right. things sort of ambiguous. Yeah, that would make sense. I know we had that one episode where he was running for election, and right. throughout the whole thing he had this little assistant who didn't seem to speak any English, and that was almost certainly a made-up language yep. there. Number six goes to the galley next. Uh, the kitchen, the ship's kitchen is called a galley. He has an interesting plan there. <laughs> I did think there was a nice little touch. The walls behind him, they had these pictures of scantily clad women taped up that had been cut out of magazines. Uh, so that was sort of very realistic, although I'm guessing in reality uh, they'd be even less clad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they could only do so much before they just chased McGowan out of the room altogether. <laughs> <laughs> he goes into this galley and he finds some strong liquor, strong enough to be flammable, <laughs> and he combines that with some old rags. It's like a video game crafting recipe. <laughs> Although, was, you know, get, given how long it's been since he's had liquor, I was sort of surprised he would be willing to use it for this, but I guess this is important. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's other liquor on the boat, so he still could. He combines the liquor and the rags in a big frying pan, and he starts a small smoldering fire. You know, as soon as he gets mm -hmm. the fire going, he dampens it down by putting more rags on top of it so that it doesn't burn so much as just smolder and create a lot of smoke, which is exactly what he wants. Yeah, he's trying not to catch the boat on fire. Yeah. The two goons, while he's starting the fire, the two goons are up on the bridge and they're drinking a bottle. You can see the label on it says Metoxa. So I did some research on this. It, uh, <laughs> it turns out to be a, a kind of liquor that was invented by a Greek man in the 1800s it's like a brandy, but it doesn't classify as one because it has slightly different kinds of grapes in it, and it's got some seasonings and flavorings and whatnot that's just enough to make it not really fall directly into the brandy category. Anyway, while I was, you know, the first time I watched, I, I didn't spot that, but I was watching it again this morning to write up my notes, and I saw it, so I when I finished writing my notes... I had a few hours left before recording the podcast, so I decided, well, I think I'll go see if I can get some of that. <laughs> One of the local liquor stores was open today, so I headed over there, and the guy had to look around a little bit for it because the, the shelves were all behind the counter. You know, I couldn't just browse myself. He asked one of his co-workers, and uh, it turned out they had it, so I got myself a bottle of Metoxa. <laughs> I have a glass of it right now, so if I, if I'm less than coherent in the second half of the podcast, you'll uh, you'll know why. Well, as but, always, the things we'll do for our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so my review of Metoxa is uh, it's not bad. It's uh, I'm taking a sip right now. 
It's very similar to brandy, and it's it's kind of like a a fruited brandy, like a Schlivovics or you know one of those that sort of thing. It's I'll read to you from the box here. Experience the unique taste of Samos Muscat wines, aged wine distillates, and Mediterranean botanicals for an intense smoothness. Metaxa Seven Stars' fruity and generous character is best explored neat, on ice, or in cocktails. So basically, is, it best explored yeah. anyway. <laughs> best explored any way you can. Yeah. <laughs> So it's um it's it's pretty tasty. I like it. I'd uh, I'd probably buy another bottle anytime I feel like uh or anytime I want to feel like a German gun runner. <laughs> so that's my research and meanwhile, while they're drinking the Metaxa, they smell the smoke, which was the plan all along, and they start shouting in German. And one of them we will find out is named Gunter because He's the one who goes to check it out, and the other guy calls him Gunter. When he checks it out, he gets into the galley, and number six chokes him unconscious. The other guy goes into the galley a little bit later to check. He doesn't see anything aside from the smoldering frying pan. When he leaves the galley, number six punches him unconscious. Mm-hmm. So now the two guys are unconscious. Number six ties them both up in the bedroom. And they're pretty well tied up, but he he knows that they can, once they come to, they can help each other escape. So he also uses a length of chain to secure the door from the outside. So some good precautions. All in all, though, I think he still gets a bit careless with the whole thing. I think he <laughs> could, do, could do more to monitor these guys. Or maybe, maybe just tie them to the tires and drag them along behind the boat. <laughs> that would probably work. But anyway, that's not what he does. On the bridge, number six spots a flashing light and a coastline that the flashing light is broadcasting from, and that catches his interest very much. Uh, He's near some kind of land. He doesn't know where it is, but it's land. And Mission Impossible-style music (laughs) starts up on the soundtrack. I think it's, you know, we've talked about the Bond music that's been mm. in other episodes. This, to me, had a very Mission Impossible mm. feel. That was just my untutored musical impression of it. In the bedroom, the goons are helping each other free of the ropes, but the door is still holding. It's still chained from the outside. But they have an answer to that. The cabinet against the wall that number six had gotten the hammer out of, they open that up. And they punch through the back of the cabinet, and it turns out that leads to another cabinet on the other side of the wall in a similar room. So <laughs> I thought this just... was clever. Like these guys aren't idiots, you know? <laughs> they... Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you'd, I guess gun running would require a certain amount of resourcefulness or yeah. animal cunning or something. <laughs> yeah, so they're out you know, out in the wild now. They've made it to the other other bedroom. And number six is really focused on that flashing light that he sees. We'll see shortly that that's a lighthouse, except that the light we, the viewers, see isn't really the lighthouse. Because for a split second, the boat turns a little bit, and the light moves too. 
so the light isn't really on the shore. It's reflected in the windshield. There's somebody, like, near the camera somehow projecting that onto the windshield to make it look like a light on the shore. Yeah, it was a good catch. I've mentioned before I'm addicted to this YouTube channel called Corridor Crew, and this is exactly the kind of stuff you learn to watch for, right? <laughs> and, uh, effects and things. Uh, so, yep, good good catch there. I hadn't noticed that. Uh, thank you. So the goons have gotten out of the bedrooms, and now they're going to try to clever girl number six, which is where one gets the attention and the others are sneaky, sneaky. <laughs> you know what? I got a story about this, too, I just thought of. So I was in London, I guess appropriate to this story with the girlfriend, and... This uh, woman comes up to me, and she's holding her phone there, and she says she's trying to get to a hospital, and she can't find it. And she has the, you know, the map thing up on the phone. So, okay, well, where are you trying to go, et cetera? And she's holding the phone in front of me, and I'm supposed to be showing her where to go. And she starts, like, moving the phone away from me so that I have to lean over more and more. And my girlfriend sort of saved me because the deal was, this is a scam where, you know, it didn't make any sense. I'm like, oh, well, what are you talking about? You'd go here. No, no, I don't understand it. You know, it was just very confusing, right? Like I wasn't getting through to her and it didn't really make sense. Well, the whole deal is she's just trying to distract me and get me to lean over so that her partner will come up and pick my pocket. <laughs> and my girlfriend realized what was happening and sort of stepped in <laughs> and stopped it. <us. laughs> <laughs> Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad they had a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> so the goons are are trying the old distraction gambit. The one busts in loudly through one door. You know, the bridge has a door on either side, and one of them comes in through one door and gets number six's attention. Then the other one comes in through the other door behind number six, who has turned to deal with the yeah. first guy. But number six isn't having any of it. He's an experienced secret agent, man. <laughs> so uh, he just fights them both. It's mostly your standard prisoner fight. You know, they fight. And there is one thing in this that stood out to me, though, which is there's a, there's a scene where number six gets a boot right in the face, and it looks <laughs> painful. So then I've, I've seen it twice, and both times it struck me as, oh, that looked bad. <laughs> yeah, I didn't so. check. Uh, it, it's probably a case where it actually happened. The other thing on that Corridor Crew YouTube channel I talked about they do is stuntmen react. So they sit down with a stuntman and go through some stunts in different movies. And it's really fascinating to see the process, and it makes you appreciate stunts all the more. But you definitely mm -hmm. see the times when they're like, yep, that's where he actually smacked him. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, if, if it's an accident, they'll st that's the take they'll tend to use because it looks the best, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> the fight ends when one of the goons fetches a gun from a drawer in the bridge. Mm -hmm. And number six, it's it's not clear to me if he saw that coming or not, but either way, he just jumps into the water before the goon can get a good shot at him. And once number six is in the water, it turns out these gun smugglers aren't actually <laughs> good at shooting guns. Yeah, it's hard to shoot somebody in the water, and if it hits the water, that doesn't... And, and also, handguns are not very accurate. In fact, yeah, I took some self-defense when I was a teenager... And especially with a handgun, and if someone's like, let's say, trying to get you to get into a car or kidnap you or something, best thing to do is just run away because hmm. those things are so inaccurate, it's going to be hard for them to hit you. 
So that makes sense. Although, on the other hand, if you take the take a moment to aim, you know that that could help. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh well. But the boat is getting close to the shore, so so the smugglers decide they're just going to turn away before they end up uh, shipwrecked. And uh, number six has a chance to swim away. He wakes up on a beach under bright sunlight. It's uh, it's daytime now. And he sees that there's a red and white lighthouse nearby. Presumably this was the flashing light that he saw. Mm -hmm. There's a very tall white cliff behind him. I was thinking this might be the white cliffs of Dover. And so I went to play uh, Assassin's (laughs) Creed Valhalla to double check. But it turned out that I had to install a 24 gigabyte update, which took me right up to (laughs) the... There's only so far you'll go for research for the show, is that what you're well, well, I was I was willing to play it, but that took me right up to the time that we were going to record the podcast. <laughs> uh, so instead, I did some Googling. Now, of course, the easy thing to do would have been to just look up this episode and see mm. whether it was the White Cliffs of Dover. But I, I didn't want to take the easy route. So, <laughs> so I looked up for some screenshots of the White Cliffs of Dover as portrayed in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And uh, I could have just looked at the actual White Cliffs of Dover, but where's the fun in that? So I I found these uh, White Cliffs of Dover Assassin's Creed Valhalla screenshots, and I believe that these are, in fact, the White Cliffs of Dover. And you've fulfilled the drinking game by getting our video game reference into this episode. (laughs) Yeah, good. Good. Didn't want to leave everybody in the lurch. (laughs) Now, one thing I noticed at this point that was actually pretty impressive, especially for a TV show, and especially at that time, his pants are ripped at the knees. His hair is out of control and matted up. He's got a stubble. This is a guy who's been at sea for two weeks. And so often we see in old movies and especially TV shows like this, like he would come out, you know, perfectly quaffed, right? (laughs) Having come right Mm -hmm. from the hairdresser or something. So I was impressed that they took the effort to really mess him up for this. Yeah, yeah. Although that said, he, even uh, in the shape he's in, he still looks more respectable than sure. 80% <laughs> of the people you meet on the street. Yeah. But yeah, they did mess him up a bit. He checks his plastic bag to be sure the film is intact. And, you know, of course, that swimming turns out to be the justification for having used that plastic bag in the first place. And he begins finding a route up to the top of the cliff. And he gets there just in time to meet a man out for a walk with his dog. And that is where you take over. We're at almost exactly halfway through the episode, I think not by accident, before the first words are spoken. And I have to say, I think this was a brilliant execution of this first half because it would be easy to have it be silent. I mean, it hasn't been silent, right? There's been tons of background noise and and birds and, you know, and things that only, if anything, highlight the fact that you're not hearing, let's say, humanity and machinery and stuff. But it could come across as artsy-fartsy, right? Oh, we're not going to talk for 23 although, minutes. Although the, the, the smugglers did talk, because that's, that's how true. we know one yeah. of them was named Gunter. But that's yeah, number true. six hasn't said anything. Number six hasn't said anything, and we haven't heard a word of English, right? So the, the kind of, so to me, it feels silent all the way through. Right. 
and it could be artsy fartsy and and you know everything but it doesn't feel like that to me it's like and you know one of the things that many shows or movies would do because they wouldn't want the audience to get bored or something is they would have him talk to himself right he'd have he'd have a little thing like all right i'd better uh Better put this compass together, you know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Something. And they don't do that. And I, I and I think it works great. It gives you this great feeling of kind of just a, a very different feel to the episode and a real feeling of isolation and that things are different. Mm-hmm. And you know, I like it a lot. Oh yeah. And even now, so what happens here is you say he meets somebody who looks like some kind of nomad as we'll find really a, a Romany and who with a dog and he says to him, where is this? And it still feels silent because the guy who doesn't speak English and doesn't say anything to him. Yeah. His reaction's interesting because it's not, it's not frightened or dismissive. It's almost like right. number six doesn't even exist to him. He just he, sort yeah, of he was gonna walk notices by him. Before- him. Yeah, he was just going to walk by him before number six said something, right? He clearly yeah. just wasn't paying attention. Um, and of course, number six wasn't diplomatic about it all. <laughs> he was like, good morning, sir. Could you tell me? You know, he's like, right, where exactly. is this? <laughs> yep. So this guy takes them to their camp. And again, it's it's clearly, I don't know how realistic this is. I actually have been around Romanies in my life when I was in Prague and stuff, but you know, you get the uh, stereotypical, maybe realistic sort of wagon and the little fire outside the wagon. They're sitting around, you know, drinking and eating food and stuff. And there's a woman there arguing with them. And again, I think this is a nonsense language that she's saying. At, at certain points, it's a little bit silly, uh, uh, the things she says, because it just doesn't hmm. doesn't even feel like a language. But after arguing <laughs> with the guys for a while, she takes number to number six a mug of hot something, coffee, water. Yeah, Maybe I something harder. Coffee. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could be. One of the things that surprised me later on, they'll mention this, and number six will call them Romanies, which I believe was uh, surprisingly respectful because, you know, these folks have typically been called gypsies, and I believe they don't self-identify as gypsies, and that's now considered to be a bit of an insult. So the fact mm-hmm. that a show this long ago was referring to them as Romanies is, I think, actually uh, being kind of ahead of the time. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I I picked up on that. It's uh, later in the episode, somebody refers to them as gypsies, and then number six corrects that. So, uh, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. So number six uh, takes a couple drinks, and again, he's not acting, I think he says thank you or something, but he's not acting very grateful. Very, very curtly. You, you see him sort of nod his head and mouth a word or two, yeah. Yeah, and then he demands to know where a road is, and after kind of trying to communicate what he's talking about, the woman indicates a direction, and he just runs off, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So even though these people have been very helpful to him, he's just out of there. And one thing production-wise I noticed here, and then I noticed it throughout the rest, while he's on the run, his pants are suddenly ripped in a very different way than they were previously. So if you watch his (laughs) pants and how they're ripped in in the scenes, going forward they'll be ripped in different ways in each scene so although they were trying to make him look roughed Uh up they weren't exactly being careful about how they were doing it and he reaches the road and there's a bobby directing traffic and at this point it doesn't make a lot of sense because he's just motioning the traffic on and it's only a tiny little two-lane road so people would have driven on whether he was there or not waving them on (laughs) we kind of discover what it's about in a bit I did another little bit of research for this. I was curious about that hat because you, you've seen these helmets, you know, whenever you see a, 
Bobby, and they're uh, they're called custodian helmets. They actually have that official name, so just <laughs> makes it sound very safe about. somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not getting paid extra for all this research, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. I've got my metoxa here. <laughs> So number six runs off, and then I guess we see why that Bobby was there. There's a roadblock. There's a car there with a flashing light, and Bobbies are all over, and they're checking each car before it goes through. And could it be for him? I mean, you know, how would they know that he would be here at this time? Like, this couldn't, you know, whatever is going on, there's no way this could all be planned out, right? If if mm-hmm. if this is a trick, they couldn't know exactly how long it would take him to get here. They couldn't know where he would land. They couldn't have all this stuff ready. So if there is a roadblock and it's for him, it's interesting. So, don't, you know, how would that mm-hmm. work? Unless the gun runner's boat was in on it and they had a tracker on it or something like that. Yeah, even then, how would they, you know, <laughs> I mean, obviously the people who run the village are powerful, but, uh, yeah. Uh <laughs> So he runs up the road to avoid this roadblock, and eventually a Netco truck drives by. I don't know what Netco means. I'm kind of thinking it might be some kind of charity or something. I didn't look it up. I don't know. I was too lazy to do research, unlike you in this episode. (laughs) (laughs) But he jumps in the back, and he gets up on this little space right next to the cabin of the truck. Yeah, this is uh, in modern U-Haul trucks. They call this mom's attic. (laughs) I don't know what that means. I mean, you stick your mother up there while you're driving. <laughs> it's, it's it's supposed to be where you put things that are fragile, I guess, mm. like things that'll get jostled or you don't want to get jostled. Uh, that's Well, I, I guess know. that's a good place for him then because he, he pulls some blankets and coverings over him so that people won't see him and then seems to go to sleep. And sometime later, we have no idea how long. He's woken up by sirens and he jumps out of the back of the truck and it's a pretty shocking scene because all of a sudden he's in the middle of a highway in downtown London. So there's traffic going by him. He's in the middle of the road. Yeah. Yeah. There's skyscrapers and they set the scene with the obligatory red double-decker bus. That's the (laughs) universal symbol for being in London. (laughs) Yep. So he fights his way across the traffic, and he's looking at a small landmark that I don't recognize, and he hears behind him someone say, hold it. And he spins around, <laughs> you know, ready for a classic prisoner fight. <laughs> but it's just a guy taking a picture of his girlfriend in front of the monuments. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. It was just a funny little, you know, uh, what is the uh, uh, subverting expectations, I guess is the term. Right. <laughs> So now we see him walking across London, kind of leisurely, and eventually he walks past his flat. He's clearly, so we've seen this flat over and over in the opening, right, where he got Mm -hmm. subdued. And he walks right past it, so he clearly is kind of suspicious and wants to see if anyone's following him. And once it doesn't seem like there's any trouble, he goes back to the door. And this... I've heard, I had read about this, but this is the first time I could actually see that on the on the door, his flat number is number one. Yeah. And that's going to be interesting. We'll probably, we'll talk about that more next week. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. But we could ask right now, has number one taken over number six's apartment? And then I, I realized, you know, real estate is so valuable, especially in London and probably even at that time. This whole thing could have been number one doing a whole plot just so he could take over number six's apartment. <laughs> so, 
It could be, but although I think the village probably has more of a net value than the one apartment. <laughs> so this kind of thing, though, does happen. I have a friend of a friend who uh, is a guy, and he met someone who was in trouble and needed a place to stay, and so he let her stay in his apartment. And it turned out she seemed to be kind of mentally ill, so she developed this plan where she was going to get him kicked out of the apartment so that uh, she would then be given the apartment, which if you think mm. in terms of the mental ill thing, just because someone else is kicked out doesn't mean you were given the apartment, right? Yeah, no, it didn't. So what she did was she scratched her face so that it was bloody, and then she attacked him, and then she called the police, 911, and mm. said that he had attacked her. And the police came. And so her idea was he had attacked her, he would be put in jail or something, and then she would get the apartment. Well, mm. he had these Nest cameras, you know, the cameras you can mm. install around your house. And so he actually sat down at his computer and showed the police the video of what had occurred. She had attacked him. Hmm. And so he was very fortunate <laughs> you know, that he yeah, had that because yes. who knows what would have happened otherwise. So all I'm right. saying is, you know, people will do a lot to get a piece of real estate. <laughs> get, oh, get yeah. <laughs> so he's standing in front of his door. And he uses the door knocker and a maid opens the door. And she, this is the perfect maid <laughs> right off the bat. She just looks <laughs> unamused, uninterested. She's been there. She's done that. <laughs> they have a little bit of discussion. And then number six says, I'd like to see your master. Which, first of all, this just shows you for, I mean, yes, it was 50 years ago, but it's not like it was 200 years ago. So we would mm. never say that today, right? We would never say that somebody who was working in a place had a master. <laughs> But she retorts, my mistress is not at home. <laughs> and he asks, actually kind of politely at this point, but a little late, do you mind if I wait? But the door has already been slammed shut in his face. <laughs> so he starts walking down the block, but then his iconic car that we've seen in the opening of each of the shows drives up and revs its engine. And there's this woman driving. Yeah, yeah, it's it's that car with the it's a it's a dark black car with a bright yellow nose on it. It's uh, yeah. you, you can't miss it. Yeah, yeah, very distinctive. And she starts to go into the flat, and he rushes up to the door of the flat and asks her what the number of the car is. And she looks at him. This is a I I love this character because she and this actress because she's a middle aged woman, but. She's really both, I, I would say, attractive and smart and just, you know, really a interesting actor and, and character. And she's not phased at all. And she sort of checks him out and says, terribly interesting. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she conveys an impression that she'd be a fun person to, to know, probably. Yeah. Kind of like the hostess at that one party, A, B, a, B and C. At. Right. Yeah. And he's very intense, and he, he recites the license number, you know, KAR120C, and he asks her what the engine number is, and then he recites the engine number to her, <laughs> and, and he says, I know every nut and bolt and cog. I built it with my own hands. And again, she's totally not phased. She said, then you're just the man I want to see. I've been having a good deal of overheating in traffic. Perhaps you'll advise me. <laughs> Come on in. So she invites him in. And it turns out she's Mrs. Butterworth, 
Yeah, the uh, the scion of the syrup empire. Yeah, yeah. I don't think in Britain they had that connection to it. <laughs> <laughs> we have this in. Uh, we'll talk about the directing later. And again, you know, McGowan directed this. So as he's coming into the flat and she's going into the living room, the camera takes his point of view. So we're, you know, which actually was difficult at the time because at the time. Cameras were very big and heavy. So doing that kind of, you know, shaky cam where you follow somebody around was was difficult. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the camera follows her from his point of view into the living room. And she offers him tea, which he would love to get because, of course, he's British and he hasn't been here in a while. And she asks who he is. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of go through this whole sequence here. And he says he's an exile, a nameless exile. And he decides his name is Smith. Peter Smith. <laughs> so finally, we know the name of number six. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, don't bet too much money on that. <laughs> <laughs> so she leaves him alone for a moment to get some food for him. And again, we have another really interesting directorial choice. He's standing in this living room, which is really important to him, really important to us, because it's the room that everything starts in, <laughs> in every episode, right? When he goes in and he's packing up this is the room Mm -hmm. he was packing up in when he gets knocked out right and we get this shot from the ceiling of him in the and we can see the entire room like 360 degrees and it's just really kind of an interesting choice and it really gives you a sense of of this room and all the things that are in it and so he starts exploring the room and he looks out the curtains <laughs> you know we've been conditioned at this point i'm expecting when he opens the curtains that he's going to see the village right? <laughs> If I remember right, we get a shot of the skyscrapers that's pretty similar to what we see in the intro right. when he's yep. looking out there. Yep. So he's really in London this time <laughs> for once. <laughs> <laughs> and he picks up the phone and there's a dial tone. We mentioned earlier the whole dial tone thing. And that really seems to be all he wanted to know is, you know, is this phone real? Because he just hangs it up again. <laughs> It does remind me of our previous discussion. Have you seen these YouTube videos where they have kids react to, to old technologies? You know, it might be an iPod or a phone or something. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think um, so. I've seen reaction videos, but not specifically old technologies. Oh, I'll see if I can get a clip from this because it's really hilarious. You know, they gave him an old like dial phone, right? Mm-hmm. And these kids have no clue what this thing is or how to use it. It's really funny. <laughs> so Mrs. Butterworth comes back in and he asks for the date. And she says, Saturday, March 18th. And very uncharacteristically for him, he says somewhat excitedly, tomorrow's my birthday. (laughs) And I think this says to me that he is believing in this, right? He's believing in this person. He's believing in this situation. And he's starting to allow himself to accept it. And also, it turns out, March 19th is Patrick McGowan's birthday. So, (laughs) Oh, no kidding. Okay. (laughs) And now he started is getting nostalgic and he's explaining to her and he says, you know, this was my house before I went away. <laughs> he said the lease had six months to run. And she said, it's been renewed. I have it for 10 years, fully furnished. Now, hmm. I'm not, I mean, in this may be a difference between Britain and the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., you would not rent a place and have the furniture. It'd be unusual, at least, that it would be furnished, especially for a decade. Like you would be expected to provide your own furniture, unless Mm -hmm. you were doing a short-term lease, right? But, you know, so anyway, Mm. I have a little bit of connection to real estate, so I think about these things. (laughs) (laughs) No, it makes sense. I've I've never actually leased a house, so I'll take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) 
that she seems very interested in him and honestly, you know, seems like she's hitting on him. She asks if he's growing a beard, <laughs> uh, says a beard would look good on him, starts talking about her husband, who she had always wanted to have a beard, but he didn't want to. But she makes it clear her husband is deceased, so I think she sort of, <laughs> you know, wants him to know that she's available. Yeah. And then, and this is funny because to me, it's a callback to that Danger Man episode we saw, right? Where there was the woman in bed and who invited him to sit on her bed. She sits down on this sort of open couch thing and then she pats mm -hmm. the seat right next to her and tells him to sit right. down. <laughs> I, and I'm just going to tell any clueless guys out there, when a woman invites you to sit right next to them on a couch, they're trying to tell you something. <laughs> All right. Good to know. <laughs> and I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, the maid brings in a plate of sandwiches, and these are very English sandwiches, right? They're the little triangles with the cuts, crust cut off. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he eats one, and then he goes crazy, and he polishes off an entire serving tray. And that serving tray yeah. in the tr traditional English tea style actually has three plates on it, right? So he, he eats three plates of sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that main plate with all the little triangular sandwiches on it, that's that's got to be at least three or four sandwiches worth there. Yep. There's a lot of them. <laughs> and at the end, and again, very uncharacteristic for number six, he seems appreciative, and he says to her, that was the best fruitcake I've ever tasted. <laughs> and I'm going to give him a pass on this because he's been at sea for a couple weeks, so it's probably true. But any time in normal situation someone says, that was the best fruitcake I've ever tasted, they're lying to you. They're just being nice. <laughs> <laughs> so he is very intent on proving to her that he used to live here. And he starts listing out all of these very specific details about the flat. Oh, you know, a year ago, there was some rot on this wall that was fixed. In the bathroom, the hot and cold water faucets were reversed. And he just goes on and on, thing after thing. And she's really unimpressed because she says, look, I believe you. I believe that you used to live here. You know, and it's like, not even, why would I, why would it matter that you used to live here, right? That's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> And when she says she believes him, number six says, sorry, I'm not used to that. <laughs> and he asked for her to show him the lease to the house and the log book of the car, by which I take the repair records, probably of the car. Mm -hmm. And so she hunts through her desk and finds them for him. And with the car, there's no indication of who the previous owner was, right? He's kind of been erased for the flat the real estate agents she worked with were not the ones he worked with right and this is kind of a classic thriller thing right i'm I'm remembering back to i can't remember the name of the movie but it was one where is a famous thriller movie where they've kind of erased oh you know it might be the one that oj simpson was in where they faked the moon landing do you remember what that was? Was it Capricorn One? Yeah, it's a, I'm thinking it was Capricorn One where, you know, these guys have been kidnapped by the government and kept away from things and they escape. And one of them comes back to his apartment very much like this. And someone else is there. And there's all this mail that they've been getting that shows that they've actually lived there longer than before he was there. But there is this this trope, I think, in thrillers where... You come back to your place and someone is living there who can prove that they've been there longer than before you left, right? Right. 
Uh, so he tells her that he has to make two important calls and he starts to leave and she gets really desperate. Now, up to now, she's really been on top of things. She's a really smart woman who's on top of things, but she suddenly gets desperate, says he mustn't go like that. And she says she's kept all her husband's things and he's welcome to them. And she sort of pulls him upstairs and gives him a sob story about her situation, her husband dying and all that. And she says, do you have any money? And he says, no. And she's like, well, then you're not going to be able to get anywhere. So let me help you out. So she gets him cleaned up with fresh clothes. And next thing we see, he's sitting in his car and she's saying, okay, if you will agree to fix the overheating problem. So she's going to let him take the car. And now she says, and this might become slightly important. (laughs) She says she might bake him a birthday cake. Hmm. And then he drives off. Yeah, because he, he promises he'll come back yeah. to return the car fixed. <laughs> and now we see him kind of retracing his steps. So he drives back to the building we see in the opening each week when he's driving the mm. car and goes down the hall and opens those doors where he usually has the argument. And I think it's a different bald guy this time. I didn't look it up. There's a bald guy sitting there. And number six mm. leans over to him and says, anyone at home? <laughs> And next thing we know, he's in a room with a couple of government people, and one who, it turns out his name James, is examining the photos he took, and he's commenting on the architecture and the possible region they would be from. Mm. The other guy, who here is named Thorpe, (laughs) we recognize because he's a former number two, the one from Hammer into Anvil. (laughs) Yeah, I, 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 I thought I recognized him as a former number two. Yeah. And they don't even try to disguise it. It doesn't look different. It's not like they've put a bunch of makeup on him or anything, you know, it's just, well, we'll we'll get back into one of those Watsonian versus Doyleist things, but you know, they just, (laughs) they liked reusing actors that they knew were reliable because they had this show to get out and and everything. But there's another possible explanation that we'll, we'll discuss when we get there. So this number, this former number two (laughs) Thorpe, uh, he's skeptical from the beginning and he points out to number six, what I've been saying all along in all these podcasts, which is, this is quite a nice prison to be in <laughs> far better than Sing Sing. In fact, he wouldn't mind spending a fortnight there on vacation. <laughs> and you can tell he's like, yeah, right. You're telling us this is a prison. Okay. And number six is in, you know, obviously very intense. He's like, no, the evidence is there in everything I've given you. And Thorpe says, it's a set of ground-level photographs from a holiday resort and a schoolboy navigational log on the back of what you call the village newspaper. <laughs> uh, clearly not impressed. But they look at the tally-ho, the actual story that was on the other side the, of, you know, the notes he'd been making while he was sailing. And the big headline is, what are the facts behind town hall? And they kind of quiz him about it. So there was a town hall. Does that mean there was a town council? Were you a member? And he's like, oh, yes, it's a democratic thing. It's elected every year, you know, and they're they're kind of, it's just like, okay, you're telling us you were in this prison, (laughs) but, you know, none of this sounds like a prison. (laughs) And he goes into great detail about how the village works while they listen skeptically. And at the end of his whole explanation, they say, you know, well, we've got a problem. You resign, you disappear, you return, you spin a yarn that Hans Christian Andersen would reject for a fairy tale. Mm. And I say, he may be a defector. It happens all the time. And number six says he also has a problem. He doesn't know which side runs the village. And kind of menacingly, he says he's going to solve that either here or elsewhere. So he's sort of threatening them. Like, if you don't work with me, 
maybe I'll work with somebody else to figure this out. Mm-hmm. You might not like that. And so they suddenly mm-hmm. kind of change their attitude. And, and James, the guy who seems to be in charge, tells Thorpe to check out every detail of number six's report. And now we get a good old-fashioned montage where we see different investigators checking out all the places he's traveled and the cliffs of Dover and the, where the Romanese were and, and all that. And, you know, they can't verify the boat or anything, but everything else he said checks out. And so they tell him that all checkable details are verified and number six is, all right, let's get to work. <laughs> so now it's time to see if we can find the village. And uh, funny, this to me was a bit of a callback. If you remember, again, in that episode of Danger Man that we watched, they, based on a painting of the village that they were using in that series, they go through a bunch of drawings of coastlines and and everything to try and figure out where it is. So essentially we're doing the same thing here. Mm-hmm. And they're working with, uh, I was an admiral and they go into great detail on the math of how long he was at sea, how strong the winds were, how long did he sleep each day? He says four hours, you know, they're like, oh, okay, really? But based on everything he tells them, they estimate it has to be within 1,750 miles of London. So on a large map, they create a circle of the minimum distance it could be and the maximum distance it could be. And with all the evidence they have, they determine it has to be somewhere around the coast of Morocco. Which which would contradict what we were told, although probably lied to about. The previous episode, (laughs) it was like 30 miles from Poland, if I remember. (laughs) Yeah. I had to say, the implication to me is this actually, well, as we'll see, this actually would be the accurate location because they're doing all this based on his actual trip, which he actually took. There was nothing faked about that, right? Mm-hmm. When he, that previous episode, which was Chimes of Big Ben, they were in planes and in boxes and everything, and they couldn't really see where they were going. Right. So, you know, they kind of faked the whole trip. But this trip was not faked. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, this would be the actual location. Yeah, it could be. Although, then again, that doesn't explain why do the trees lose their leaves in autumn. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not get too deep into it. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're at an airfield. And for no reason at all, I mentioned that a milk truck drives up and a milkman gets out. <laughs> <laughs> it's common to see milk trucks at airfields. Oh, yeah. I, I saw that scene and I it completely just went right over my head. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Things make a little more sense now. <laughs> yeah. So we go into a room of an area where number six is suiting up and there's a guy who's going to be the pilot of the of a jet suiting up and they're going to be flying together. And James is there and they're, and number six is very intense. And, you know, we're going to sweep the possible area today, tomorrow, however long it takes. And James says, oh, you were never one to give up. Right? And the pilot is not finished dressing up and they're ready. So they leave and the pilot says he'll be there in a moment. And number six talks with James while they're heading for the jet. And again, for no particular reason, I'll mention that the milkman now happens to go into the building where the pilot is. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, the pilot comes out and he's fully suited up with his visor down and his oxygen mask on already. And he gets in And there's lots of flying and navigating and the pilot isn't talking, but number six is telling him exactly where to go and what angle to go at and this and that. And he's really micromanaging how they sweep the area. One detail I want to mention about the departure 
when the two guys from the spy agency are talking, mm. that struck me as interesting. I don't know what if there's great significance to it, but one of them asks the other one, who is this guy? And he says something to the effect of he's, he's an old friend who mm. never gives up. <laughs> um, so the way the guy says it makes you think that he's probably on number six's side. Mm. But that's nothing in the show is a foregone conclusion. But, right. But, but I yeah, yeah. And anyway, well, we'll get back to that later. I just yeah. wanted to put it here because this is where it happens in the story. Yep. Yeah, and it's James who says he's the old friend, right? Which also yeah. could be significant as we go on later. Yep. Uh, so after they've been flying around for a long time, number six sees the village on a coastline. Mm-hmm. And... You know, he indicates this to the pilot and he's getting all ready for them to fly in close. This, I have to say this was, this was kind of like a, uh, I won't say emotional moment exactly, but it was a surprise for me because I, I, I didn't think he was going to have any luck. And then like, there he <laughs> is looking down at it and I was like, yep. oh man, I didn't mm-hmm. expect that. <laughs> yeah. And you can imagine how he feels. And yeah. at this point now, number six doesn't see this, but we do. The pilot opens his helmet and surprise, it's the milkman. <laughs> <laughs> and he pulls a lever that is going to eject number six. And on the way, he says, be seeing you. <laughs> <laughs> and he ejects number six out of the plane. And we get lots of shots of him floating down and parachuting down. And number six lands on the beach and gets pulled along by the parachute and then releases himself from the harness and looks at the village, still seems abandoned, can't really see anything, walks from the beach to the village, and the black cat is waiting for him where it last was. So that's a very patient cat. Or, <laughs> or you know, it was uh, uh, new when to come back, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> And he slowly walks to his apartment. Everything's still abandoned, you know, and silent and empty. And he walks in. And as he walks into his apartment, the shower that he had started at the beginning of all this weeks ago starts flowing with water. (laughs) The lights come on. His coffee starts percolating. (laughs) And Miss Butterworth enters. And she's wearing a number two button. And she's carrying a cake with a candle on it. And she brings it up to him and says, Many happy returns. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to his window and looks out the curtain, and the village is fully active again. Everyone is in place, mm, and here we are. marching bands and twirling umbrellas and all the pomp and pageantry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> End of the episode. <laughs> and from my perspective, yeah. I've made clear to some degree, end of the story. Although there's an important, you know, important okay. next part, but. Well, so what did you think about this as as a story? I uh, I liked it a whole lot. I uh, I really enjoyed it. Actually, uh, I mean, I've I've enjoyed all the episodes to some extent or another, but uh, this one in particular, I uh, uh, really had fun with. Although it does raise a lot of questions, and particularly mm. like now that I know that the milkman was. You know, he he snuck in and made himself the pilot. That sort of, at least implicitly, answers the question of were the spy agency guys 
part of the village organization all along? And, and the answer is uh, possibly not. They, they possibly were, but they might be still completely oblivious of the whole thing. And then it raises the question, well, if they knew he was going to search down here in this area by Morocco, then what will happen when they find out that the other pilot was, you know, either knocked yeah. out or killed or whatever. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions that the story <laughs> could set up if they felt inclined to keep some sort of continuity going. Well, I'm going to argue, uh, so I think it's a really good point. And I think the milkman thing is critical, actually, because normally, like in Chimes of Big Ben, right? And, and, and here's, well, let me talk a little bit about some of my ordering in my decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we didn't see Chimes of Big Ben until several episodes in, but it's usually done as the second episode. And I would argue that essentially the arc and the arc that I'm trying to do with this order is from Chimes of Big Ben to this. Because Chimes of Big Ben is the same story, right? They go to London. Right. And then it, he's defeated and he's actually in the village. Yeah, he thinks he's home free and then he ends up screwed. Right. <laughs> so this is really the same story, just done in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to my mind, you sort of have, he had that early on and then this, you know, here was his last real chance. Now, in Chimes of Big Ben, as near as we can tell, everybody's in on it, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. because, I mean, all of the officials he meets and everything in London are actually in the village. Um, right. So they're all part of this. But in this one, the existence of the milkman who must have knocked out, or or worse, you know, the mm-hmm. actual pilot, means that they're not all in on it. You know, some, right. we, you know, certainly James doesn't appear to be in on it. The other guy, uh, Thorpe, may have been in on it. Yeah, if they had been in on it, it wouldn't be necessary for him to be sneaky about it. Yeah, they. so yeah, like uh, they didn't have to do that in Chimes of Big Ben because everybody was in on it. So this implies not everyone is in on it. I would say probably what happens is the guy goes back as the pilot and says, oh, he went crazy and jumped out or, you know, something like that. Like, he just mm-hmm. makes up some story. Um, and since they're already suspicious at number six, you know, that probably flies mm-hmm. for me, as I say, that's kind of the arc of the story is that he keeps trying to escape every few episodes and it gets closer and closer. And one of the reasons I consider this, the end of that arc is that he, he's never going to come closer than this. He actually mm-hmm. got to London. He actually worked with people, some of whom truly were, you know, believing in him and not mm-hmm. part of the plot. And he still couldn't do it. Like he's never going to, it's never going to be better than this. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason I say to my mind, it's insane that this was broadcast as the seventh episode. So in the middle or even less than the middle of the whole series, because you put the most plausible escape attempt possible in the middle of the series. Well, after that, nothing can be believed, right? You're never going to believe that he's going to get out. Yeah. That's my argument. It makes and, sense. The Gilligan's think, Island mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 At least we didn't have uh, the Harlem Globetrotters visiting the village. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so to me, this is a, a pretty satisfying ending to that arc, you know, and it feels that way. Like I say, just, I think the whole feel of it and the whole silence and, and everything just makes it feel like it's kind of significant. Now, some People feel in their own ordering that because Thorpe is the same actor who played number two in the Hammer and Anvil, that it makes sense to put this episode right before Hammer and Anvil. Because then 
it's like, well, you meet Thorpeer and then he becomes number two in the next episode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's some logic to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my other issues. And that just comes back to what we say. There's no order that perfectly makes sense. So you could absolutely <laughs> tell a story where you do that, right? Yeah. A funny thing, you know, George Markstein, who was the story editor who McGowan is raging at in the intro, this was his last episode that he worked on because they couldn't agree on how to end the series. <laughs> mm. So next week, we'll get to decide who was right, you know, Markstein or McGowan. <laughs> yeah, I'll be, I'll be interested to see what the next two episodes are, are all about, if this is the last story episode or whatever term you right. used for it. <laughs> narrative. Yeah, and, is what I was yeah, narrative. Very high okay, yeah, of so. me. <laughs> so I'm, well, I'm curious. <laughs> and here's the last seed I will plant in yours and our listeners' minds is I'm going to be curious to see how you experience it. If you come out of this thinking, okay, he just had his best chance ever. He actually got to London. He actually found where the village is, right? He knows where the village is because they flew there. Right. And he's still trapped in the village. So mentally what happens to him? Right. And that's where, that's the seed I will put. (laughs) I have a question, uh, that, well, maybe you have ideas about this because I'm, I'm a little baffled about it. What was this number two trying to accomplish the whole, uh, throughout this episode? I mean, it's, (laughs) you know, shutting down the whole village. I mean, there had to be some preparation that went into that. Letting number six get out of there for three weeks, more or less. It it isn't obvious. It doesn't seem as though they made any progress in getting him to reveal the information Mm -hmm. they wanted. So Mm -hmm. was it all just to screw around with them, or was there something that I'm missing here? Well, I think that's a really important question. And I think that in my mind, in the way we're structuring this here, And we've talked about it before in previous episodes. You know, yes, they wanted to know why he resigned, but they also wanted to break him in the process. Mm -hmm. They could have just tortured the hell out of him and killed him until he gave up his secret. So Mm -hmm. I would argue this episode, especially when you put it at effectively the end, as I have, has said, yeah, we're we're just going to break you. (laughs) You know, like Mm -hmm. at this point, we don't even care anymore. We're just going to break you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, why it would yeah. matter to break him? Why you wouldn't just kill him? I mean, that's interesting, right? I mean, I don't. There's, I think there's no good answer oh, for that. Yeah, but. There's. Well, I think. I mean, 1984 ends up being pretty much all mm-hmm. about that. They 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 break people because it's a checking the item off the list for them. You know, like Big Brother. It's not enough to have you obey. You you have to be on the team, you know, just, right. just so there aren't any loose ends. <laughs> right. Right. And that's a big thing in the, in the, in the last, I don't know, maybe quarter or so of, of 1984 that, you know, they could have just killed Winston Smith at any time, but no, the, he, right. he, it wasn't enough that he had to repent. <laughs> right. And this honestly has always been an interesting question to me for actual dictatorships, whether it's North Korea or Iraq back in the day or whatever, clearly the people in charge technically could just kill everybody who defies them in any way, but they don't. They they put a lot of them in jail or in camps or whatever. And so I think there have to be forces that are 
holding them back. And I think, mm -hmm. I mean, partially it may be a feeling of control over these people and punishing them, but also people have families and they have structures and everything. And if you put someone in jail or in a camp, the family will be unhappy about it, but they're also now under control, right? Because mm, yeah. they don't want their loved one to be killed, so they're going to act the way you want them to act. Right. You know, similarly, I've, I've read sort of academics and stuff who do studies who say that, you know, the reality is that a dictator is not in absolute control. The dictator must keep sort of the top tier folks of their society happy. Mm. And if they don't, by giving them gifts and giving them, you know, positions and all the rest of that, at some point, those top tier folks will rise up against them. Yeah, yeah. There's a a thing. Uh, Glenn Reynolds. Uh, he's a he's a blogger. Uh, he talks every now and then about a the idea of a preference cascade, where once enough people start to change their minds about something, or or open their eyes about something, or you know, just just do th think things that they're not supposed to be thinking, you know, the, it gets to a point where things just start to go real fast. And, mm -hmm. uh, especially if you're deliberately out there making enemies, it, it can go all the right. faster. And yeah, so you end up in this bizarre situation where let's say, you know, a country as with as powerful leadership as China, they are scared to death of their people, mm -hmm. you know? When you have a billion people or whatever, if you get what you're, you know, what you just referenced as a preference cascade, you're in trouble because <laughs> there's a lot more of them yeah. than there are of you in leadership, right? Or even your military. Oh, yeah. So that's one of the reasons I think you get in this weird situation where such a powerful government will just crack down so hard on everybody because they're so scared. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. And I mean, this calls back to me and maybe we'll talk about it next week as well to, you know, what I've been saying in the intro to all of these, which is, this is a story that's more relevant now than ever. I honestly believe that the prisoner is more meaningful and more resonant now than it was when it came out. Because mm -hmm. the idea of being that, under sure. constant surveillance, the, under, the idea of being constantly manipulated so that your behavior will go in the acceptable direction, that's so much more real now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The mechanisms for doing that kind of widespread enforcement, you know, both the monitoring and the uh, making there be consequences for it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's definitely <laughs> much more woven into society than it was uh, 50 or more years ago. Yeah. So on that cheery note, <laughs> our... Uh... <laughs> Next two episodes, kind of the, the true finale of the series and the way we're doing it, it will be Once Upon a Time and Fallout. And then, as we've mentioned, uh, uh, after that, we will go over the episodes that I took out of all of this. But in terms of the story, as we're telling it next week, we will cover the end with those two episodes. All right. Sounds good. I'm looking forward to finding out just what the what the deal is with those. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
which triggered in me something, which uh, I may put this as a post-credit thing, uh, a really unfortunate th- thing that happened. Um, as you know, a while back, a number of years ago, um, I had a big life change that gave me a chance to try out some new things. So one of the things that I wanted to try out was uh, diving, and I uh, tried out diving while I was in, uh, take on vacation in Maui, which is an incredible place to dive. And that mm-hmm. inspired me to, you know, get a diving certificate and become an official diver. And one of the things that I did was I went, um, on this boat to the channel islands. So these are islands off the coast of California where you can, you know, go diving for lobsters and do other things. And, mm-hmm the boat would go out for several days. It was like a three day trip and a whole lot of things happened on that trip. And, you know, I learned a lot about diving and there was someone who got caught stealing lobsters from lobster traps. And that was a big drama (laughs) and all this. Mm. Uh, and it was kind of a, a big event in my life to, you know, just go take this three day diving trip. And I met a friend who's still a friend today, um, on that trip. Well, a couple of years later, actually just a couple of years ago, um, that exact same boat that I was on, on that exact same trip at the exact same time of year, um, a fire started on the boat and it, at night, late at night. Um, and the thing is in a, not unlike what you see here in this show, um, all the, everyone slept, uh, on the, uh, the lower floor of the boat. And there were all sorts of blankets and separators and everything that were all very flammable down there. And the only way mm. to get out, to get up to the surface of the boat, uh, was a, a, a kind of steep winding staircase. So, mm. you know, it, was, it, it would take you some effort and time. So once the boat caught on fire and once the fire got down there, it just ripped through it all. The only people, uh, something like 24 people died, uh, oh, some wow. of whom I had probably n- met. Um, uh, some mm. of the crew and stuff I'd probably met when I was on the boat. And the only people who survived were some of the crew members who were up top who jumped off the boat, um, once it started on fire and there's oh. pictures of this and everything. So it's, yeah, you know, <laughs> you know uh, during a nice, uh, uplifting, uh, prisoner story, a little bit <laughs> of, of tragedy, it would, but is also one of the, you know, from a selfish point of view, of course, it's one of those sliding door things, right? Um, I had stopped diving for a while for, for complicated reasons. If I had not stopped diving, uh, there's a very good chance I would have been on that boat. The friend who I met on that trip planned to be on the boat and, um, and that didn't work out. Um, so, you know, yeah, sometimes, uh, these things happen. And well, and I won't include this in the show, but you know, I think that's, do you remember when I was visiting you? I think that that was being done to you with that guy, we were like going to the game shop or something. And he, um, he was trying to get directions somewhere and he was sort of putting a map in front of you. And, and I felt like the same thing was going on there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think you told me about that other experience at at that time too. Yeah. Right. So, (laughs) I mean, because I'd gone through that, when that happened, when he like pulled out the map and put it in front of you and all that, uh, I stepped back. Not because I was going to leave you to your own devices, but because I wanted to, 
be aware of the whole situation. All and, right. Uh, see, yeah. see where the other, <laughs> other dude was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Very good. Well, thanks. I uh, <laughs> haven't, haven't had my pocket picked yet that I'm aware of. <laughs> Knock on wood. Well, uh, and, what, and again, what, um, we're going better. Uh, actually, if after I say this, why don't we take a break? Cause I'm going to refresh my drink and we're close to the end of this. Um, one of the things, though, that I've learned in reading about these things and everything is, you know, sometimes someone will get pissed off in a situation like that and they'll chase the guy or whatever. Never do that because mm. usually if there's a setup, there's someone nearby with a gun or a weapon to mm. help them if they get in trouble. Oh, okay. um, so, you know, if you get in a situation like that and the guy runs off, you just let him run off. <laughs> mm, <laughs> Not that okay. I think either one of us would be too likely to to chase somebody <laughs> down, but, you know, yeah. Yeah, I could I could chase for a good uh, fifty yards anyway. Beyond that, it might be a little touch and go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, if you don't mind, I want to take a break in the moment. Yeah, sounds good. Be seeing you. 